0: there really was not much by way of helping individuals transition successfully into full employment in the real world. Uh, I used graduate school as my transition vehicle, uh, and that resulted in my matriculation into places I've, I've worked. You can find all that on LinkedIn. Uh, but in, in the necessity being the mother of invention, I kind of came up with a process of my own and uh, it it worked for me and because again nothing existed and you taught military to help out your buddies i I kind of reached back and began helping other peers with just this basic process i began to to put in place inevitably over time over the years this thing continued to evolve and more people were helped and i consistently got a couple pieces of feedback one of which was thanks because typically folks would land better than they would have otherwise Uh, the other was hey have you ever thought about? scaling what you're doing, because there's literally tens, hundreds of thousands of people leaving the military every year. Have you ever thought about writing a book?
1: And that's Matt Lewis on this episode of Time to Sing Your Song. Matt is a man who gave 25 years of his life serving our country. He also spent 25 years in the corporate world, and these experiences gave him a unique perspective to the obstacles that veterans experience, landing a meaningful job. After serving their country. When Matt entered the private sector, there weren't any good transition models or approaches that he could follow. So he created his own. He soon found himself sharing these ideas with his military brothers who were going through their own transition. This all led him to writing his first book, Mission Transition. He is back now with a second book, Hiring Veterans A Guide to Helping Organizations Hire and Retain Members of the Military Community. And while Matt had a fulfilling and successful career in the corporate world, he was pulled to his mission in life, helping veterans transition into the private sector as the president of PurePost, an organization that matches job opportunities to the full competencies and skills of veterans. During our conversation, we will cover some startling statistics on the civil-military divide, the myths that plague veterans entering the private sector the immense value that veterans can contribute to companies big and small why organizations are not fully taking advantage of the veteran talent pool that's out there matt's lessons from his transition from the military to the private sector to leading peer post and finally advice for others who are feeling a tug to do more purposeful work if you're enjoying these conversations go to apple podcasts or spotify and give Time to Sing Your Song, a five-star rating. Please also share your thoughts as well. It really does help bring bringing awareness to these awesome stories like Matt's. As I go deeper on this journey, it is becoming clearer by the day that Time to Sing Your Song is a platform for ordinary people to share their stories and how they overcame gnarly obstacles to live a life that they only dreamed of. What's crazy is the variety of stories that are coming at me. But I am in the need of more. So if you have one or you know somebody who does, reach out to me. Easiest way is to send me an email at mike at timetosingyoursong.com or you can send a direct message on social media, Mike Kearney on LinkedIn or Emma Kearney 33 on Twitter. Okay, let's get to it. Matt, welcome to Time to Sing Your Song.
0: Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Really appreciate it.
1: Awesome. Matt, I want to start with your personal mission, which if I understand it correctly is to eliminate the civil military divide. So I want to start there. What is the divide that you're talking about?
0: So the the civil military divide is in essence, the the gap, if you will, between those that have served in the, the military and those that have not. And it's, uh, Characterized by any number of things, just to throw out some statistics that give you a sense of of what it is, uh, the, the percentage of those that have served uh, at any point in the past is uh, about uh, 7% across the entire U.S. population, and it's trending downward for, for the ensuing decades. It's a simple factor of those that have served on active duty at any point in the past, and the U S population continuing to rise. So there's, there's an increasing gap there, uh, specifically just to put it in the more of the younger generation, less than one half of 1% of the U S population has served on active duty at any time post nine 11. Uh, so that kind of puts an exclamation point on it. Uh, A couple other stats, you know, uh, (laughs) <laughs> the the percentage of members of Congress, so the U.S. House, U.S. Senate, is at an historic low. Uh, so those that are running a country, at historic, from a historical perspective, are at a, a dearth of having that understanding of what it means to to serve one's country in a military capacity. Uh, if you look at the workforce itself, uh, the percentage of those that are in the workforce. Uh, that have served, the, the percentage beyond retirement age is more than 50% of, of veterans now, uh, again, which is at a historic number. Uh, it, just to give you a sense, turn that around in terms of those running the corporate world. Uh, the Wall Street Journal tells us that uh, the, the number of large publicly held corporations who had CEOs with any military background whatsoever is 2.5% and falling. Mm. So So flip those around. Uh, you know, if your service member is coming out interviewing for a role at a certain level, there's 97.5% chance or more that the individual sitting across the table from you has no idea who you are, what you've done, what you can do. And uh, so those are some stats. And in in the face of that, because of there's that lack of experience, lack of common understanding, there's stereotypes that pervade driven by Uh, mainstream media, movies, what have you, that give you a far different view of what uh, our service members are actually bringing with them in leaving the military today, all of which results in uh, individuals uh, and then the suicide rates, individuals not being hired uh, and lots of bad news, if you will, Um, again, just to give you some statistics Uh, More than half of veterans will be unemployed on average when they leave the military Of 22 Mm. weeks. Uh, Almost two-thirds are not in their chosen career field um, uh, in, in their first jobs, and they only spend about a year and a half in those jobs. They continue to job hop and job hop and job hop, so much so that by the time they're in their sixth the number six, post military job, half of them still aren't in their preferred career field. Wow! And in the midst of this, the suicide rate has more than doubled uh, over the past decade and a half or so. So it's it's a long winded answer to your question, uh, but it's a divide that uh, you know is painful on on both sides, frankly. Um, certainly, uh, given those figures I just stated, it's painfully felt on the military side, but I would characterize the, the pain on the other side as a missed opportunity. If uh, those that that haven't served understood the the value, the tool set, uh, the, the skills, competencies that the service members bring with them, there would be far more engagement from the other half of the divide, as it were.
1: One of the reasons why I wanted to have you on was to do exactly what you're doing to bring awareness to this issue. And the stats that you provided and quite frankly we could go down a rabbit hole talking about all of this and the implications are just alarming, quite frankly when I started to look at them uh, and the material you shared, you know, my mind was blown. But I guess the question that I have for you is is why is this so important to you personally because you know, this has become your life. We're going to get into some of the books you've written, the work that you're doing now, but why is this important to you?
0: Why it is important to me, uh, a couple of reasons, just I'll state up front that I'm probably one of a, a few people around that has spent 25 years in a uniform of some sort and more than 25 years and counting in counting in the corporate world. Now, some of that military time was in the reserve, so I'm... <laughs> I'm not in my 80s or 90s, as the, <laughs> yeah. the, the math might indicate, but uh, because of that, I'm able to lend a voice to both sides of that divide and help, you know, the one side understand the other. Uh, to get into some of the the personal motivation, though, uh, I'll I'll have to get into my story a little bit here. You know, way back when I left um, active duty uh, after my first five years out of west point this is in the mid 90s these were the clinton drawdown years Uh, there there really was not much uh, by way of helping individuals transition successfully into full employment in the real world Uh, i used graduate school as my transition vehicle uh, and that resulted in my matriculation into places I've, i've worked you can find all that on linkedin uh but in, in the necessity of being the mother of invention, I kind of came up with a process of my own. And uh, it, it worked for me. And because, again, nothing existed and you're taught in military to help out your buddies, I, I kind of reached back and began helping other peers with just this basic process I began to, to put in place. Inevitably, over time, over the years, this thing continued to evolve and more people were helped. And I consistently got a couple pieces of feedback one of which was thanks, because typically folks would land better than they would have otherwise. Uh, the other was, hey, have you ever thought about scaling what you're doing? Because there's literally tens, hundreds of thousands of people leaving the military every year. Have you ever thought about writing a book? And uh, my, my standard joke here is uh, I, I'd always laugh at that because I got a, a D in English my freshman year at West Point. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I, you know, I'm the last person that should be writing books. Uh, but what changed my mind is now fast forward a couple decades later, and I have, you know, classmates, I refer to them as my, my blood brothers and sisters who have committed not just their lives, but their entire, their entire family's lives in service to the country. It's all they've done. And now they're leaving the military, uh, having commanded at, at the highest levels. And in spite of all that, they're still faced with a support system, uh, that, that doesn't do as well by them as they ought, and we're still left with all of those negative statistics that I uh, talked about before. So after all this time, having seen, uh, again, my my friends uh, going through what they're going through, that's kind of what uh, sparked the fire and resulted in me finally picking up a pen and doing what they'd asked me to do over many years, which is uh, put to Uh, my thoughts around that. But as given my consulting background, uh, I tend to approach problems holistically. And so tackling uh, just that transition piece, it opened my eyes to the the broader ecosystem, if you will, uh, around uh, all the root causes surrounding this. And what I settled on is this focus on the civil military divide. And that has resulted in work in three different areas that we can get into, uh, but that's really what's driven my life's pivot. And uh, I'm trying to make a dent in this thing.
1: That's awesome. I was uh, downtown Austin uh, probably about three weeks ago for my my anniversary with my wife, and I was sitting in a pool with three C5 pilots, the oldest one of which was 28, I think. <laughs> and I remember listening, and I know your your Army background, but I just remember listening to them talk about the responsibility that they have you know transporting machinery transporting people going into you know very difficult war zones and they're 28 years old that's right and so the question i have for you is what do you think veterans are really good at that may surprise the average person
0: and and there's lots of studies on this and you know in my books <laughs> again perhaps because uh my English teachers didn't think much of me. I did a a lot of homework and cited a lot of studies to try to bring forth facts. There's not much opinion or hearsay in my book. So I'll I'll reference some of those in answer to your question. Uh, So veterans bring an awful lot and more than most people realize. Uh, You know, the Institute for Veterans and Military Families at Syracuse University, which for those not familiar, it's kind of one of the preeminent academic houses, if you will, that studies this issue. And they've had very in-depth studies over the years. Uh, And and there's also been surveys of HR leaders uh, in the corporate world that have found the same thing uh, to codify the business value of veterans. Uh, the, The main takeaway here is that these HR leaders have found that veterans, because of what they bring, and I'll touch on that momentarily, have been found to be promoted faster, perform better, and easier to manage than their non-veteran peers. Now, I, I want to be careful with that because I don't intend to create an, an us versus them, veteran versus non-veteran dynamic here. Uh, and we can get into how I'm addressing that with the books. But but why is that? And that's because veterans have been found to have a number of competencies here, and I'll rattle off a few that that make it so. Uh, one, just because they're hoisted with tons of responsibility, as you just indicated, at a very young age, uh, they're forced to be very entrepreneurial. They're tackling any number of situations downrange, perhaps in a combat environment, perhaps in a different country, and they have to figure it out. So they become very adept at creating order from chaos and having a very entrepreneurial nature in going about their work. In doing so, they assume high levels of trust. When you're working in those kinds of environments with peers, regardless of your service, you have to trust the person to the left, to the right, and up and down the chain that you're working with. Uh, They're they're very adept at skill transfer across those various contexts and and tasks that they're performing. Uh, They have tons of technical training. Uh, In fact, if you look at a combination of the training and the education and the experience that veterans have at an equivalent age of their civilian peers, it tends to exceed it by quite a bit. Uh, You know, again, being very comfortable and being able to adapt in what I'll call discontinuous environments. I just kind of described that different countries, combat, perhaps, what have you. Uh, Resilience, team beating skills, uh, team building skills, rather, uh, communication capability, being committed to an organization, uh, understanding Cultures and being able to work across cultures. Again, if you're deployed downrange and pick your country, you're going to be directly engaging with different cultures. So, I'll kind of leave it at that and, and summarize the answer to your question. But there's an awful lot they bring to the table.
1: So it's amazing listening to you. Essentially, a veteran sounds like that dream employee that we're always looking to hire. So what do you think some of the biggest challenges they face are, especially in their transition, especially when you think about the fact, that comment that you made that sometimes they're into their sixth job and they still haven't found their place?
0: Yeah, so (laughs) what's crazy is, in spite of all of the good that they bring, uh, very few organizations are taking advantage of uh, the fact that these folks exist. And they are readily, there are plentiful talent source. There's more than 200,000 of them matriculating from the military every year. Uh, but and and they're available real time, unlike those coming off of college campuses, either undergrad or graduate school. They tend to matriculate at very certain times within a calendar year. Vets are available all the time. Uh, in spite of that, and in spite of the good that they can bring, if I believe what the U.S. Chamber tells us. Uh, you know, let's look at small businesses, small businesses, again, by the way the, the chamber uh, defines that 99 small businesses make up more than 99 percent of the businesses in the country, and they're responsible on an annual basis for 42 percent of the new jobs created. Mm-hmm. But but 90 percent of <laughs> the businesses that represent 99 percent of the businesses in the country do not intentionally hire veterans. Uh, so it's a huge missed opportunity at a small business. But even if we look at larger organizations that, you know, do have the, uh, the resources available to put uh, uh, programs in place to successfully assimilate these folks, they're not taking advantage of them by and large as well. If I believe a survey that Corn Ferry did, uh, they, that tells us that 80% of organizations don't have veteran-specific hiring programs, That's 71% don't provide talent acquisition professionals training on how to do so. And more than half of them don't provide onboarding support. Uh, another interesting dynamic to throw out, there, there was recently this decision by the Supreme Court uh, eliminating uh, the, the ability for colleges to uh, use racial preferences in deciding admissions efforts. Uh, if I believe what I read in uh, some of the media, there's an expectation that Uh, that uh, bent will uh, evolve to uh, take place in the corporate world. Uh, The interesting thing is veterans represent not only a real-time plug-and-play from a talent pool, they represent a real-time diversity, equity, and inclusion play. 31% of veterans uh, are made up of racial and ethnic minorities, and they bring the, the success. We can get into some of some of those details, but they bring success as well. If they're met halfway and uh, are circled with a, uh, a group of peers. Uh, so to, to get into your, your question, what are some of the barriers? I kind of characterize the civil military divide, uh, but when the rubber hits the road, what's specifically missing in those veteran hiring programs, and one of the first uh, things that I mentioned when I advise organizations on how to put these programs in place, one, it needs to be driven from the top down. And it, it, this is you know, true for veteran hiring programs. It frankly would apply to any uh, talent initiative where you're trying to bring in more of a particular target group. Uh, if you don't have that top down initiative, uh, it, it's not going anywhere. And the larger organization, the more that's true because you need to overcome inertia uh, to, have, to change that behavior. Uh, the, the other couple things I point to where uh, organizations fail and the, the, in turn the barriers that veterans run into is they're not surrounded by a, a peer set. so which could take the form of uh, a business resource group that's specific to veterans. Uh, and, which is incredibly helpful to be surrounded uh by in from a veteran standpoint we call it a tribe from for by other members of your tribe uh all sorts of behavioral dynamics as to why that's important and then the 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 last thing a a good many organizations don't have uh mentoring programs uh which it's really success beyond the the top-down support, uh, both Talking the Talk and Walking the Talk in terms of resources, the the two big dynamics that will spell success for these programs are having a BRG, a peer set, a tribe, and uh, a mentoring program such that these veterans are connected with individuals that demonstrate uh, what it means, what it looks like to succeed in the organization, and are taught kind of how to do so with regular checkpoints uh, once they have their foot in the door.
1: Matt, when you started out, you talked about the dwindling percentages of people that are either in the military or were in the military. And so a lot of what you just shared seems predicated on having people, you know, that have firsthand military experience. So you start off with, you know, it's important to have, you know, tone from the top, the CEO or whomever that may be you know really sponsoring this but if they don't have any connection to the military how do they how do they understand the importance of this like what are some things that can be done to create awareness with these leaders
0: so for one it's it's education and i'm obviously happy to help in that regard um to the extent that they have an interest in putting together a program like this they are undoubtedly some subset of individuals in their organization that are veterans. Now, they may not have self-identified, but if these senior executives are willing to advertise the fact that they're going to put one of these programs in place, these folks will tend to come out of the woodwork because uh, veterans really enjoy helping other veterans. And uh, people will step up when they understand that there's an opportunity in place to help bring in more of their, again, I'll use the word tribe, uh, into that organization. Because again, they they know, they understand the value that that talent pool represents. And they will be <laughs> kind of falling over themselves uh, to have more of the same uh, within that workforce working shoulder to shoulder.
1: Yeah, Matt, earlier today, I was uh, perusing the Wall Street Journal. And I really wish I read this article in more depth. One of the things that caught my eye was the fact that they said a lot of kids that are graduating college don't have practical real life skills. And that's because they've been holed up in you know their bedroom learning that way for the last several years. But when I go through and I, I read all of the different skills, quite frankly, that veterans have, they all seem like they're practical application skills. Like they learned something, which is great, but they also had a career in applying them at whatever their craft was. And so I know this is probably more commentary, but I, I don't know uh, if you have any thoughts on that. But but if I were an employer and hearing everything that you're talking about and the things that I know I need, i.e. like, hey, you actually really know what you're doing, that seems pretty
0: inviting to me. Yeah, no, it's it's more than commentary. It's an uh, astute observation. Uh, the, the way that our service members are trained is through a sequence that we call very generically crawl, walk, run. And regardless of your career field, regardless of your service, this is the way in which you were trained. Just to illustrate it, you know, the, the crawl phase would be, regardless of whatever task you're being taught, you would learn it in a classroom environment. And that actual classroom could be literally in a classroom or uh, somewhere out in the field. Uh, then the walk phase is through a bit of an apprenticeship. There's someone that's more experienced in the task is going to walk you through it before you're actually released to go and begin uh, practicing the, the task, uh, performing the task on your own. Uh, the reason for this is obviously in the military, lives are at stake. Uh, but the, the, by, by nature, uh, individuals in the military have spent their entire careers, regardless of it, its duration, putting in practical uh, approach or practical application exactly what they've been taught. Um, And so there's, there's good reasons for that.
1: So one of the things that I was blown away by were some myths, some common myths that you had shared with me about veterans. Like I was really blown away things that I thought I, I should have known, I didn't know, and they were extraordinary. Can you share a couple of those with us?
0: Yeah, absolutely. We kind of talked about education and skills and competencies. Uh, One I like to throw out that uh, most people, (laughs) it it really uh, turns their perception upside down is around the percentage of uh, veterans in a notional organization that would actually have PTSD. Uh, There's a myth out there that uh, not so much a myth, but more of a stereotype that veterans by and large are uh, you know, all about to go postal. They're all broken, if I can use mm. those terms. Uh, where the reality is uh, anything but. In terms of relative percentage of their uh, employee population, a couple others I'll, I'll throw out real quick. Um, one, there's a sense that uh, you know, military is not very diverse. I, I may have mentioned earlier, thirty-one percent of the military is made up of racial and ethnic minorities. So you're, you're not only hiring success in terms of what they can do, you're implicitly hiring a a DEI component. Uh, There's another myth out there that, uh, you know, again, veterans are broken and they're all disabled and they all require accommodations. Again, anything but most don't require accommodations and 58% of which cost nothing if they do uh, require anything. Uh, And I guess the, the last one I want to hit on is there's a sense in some organizations that, you know, why bother? You know, why should, you know, if I get beyond the, the value, uh, the business value of veterans, you know, why should I really bother? It really has no uh, real outcome at the end of the day. Uh, and I, I want to debunk that by throwing a couple different things out. One, uh, if you consider as an organization the fact that the military community, and I'm using that term broadly, uh, those actively serving their families, those veterans that have served, that military community comprises 37 million individuals who wield 1.2 trillion in annual buying power. So, if, if I'm a big business and I'm trying to ingrain myself to a, a population, uh, <laughs> there's a there's a big target for you. Uh, you know, we talked about. Uh, organizations and the programs that they can put in place, those organizations that are successful bringing in veterans as part of a broader uh, DEI initiative realize a, a number of <laughs> amazing stats here 22% increase in productivity, 13 times higher mean cash flow, four times better able to deal with personnel problems, three times more likely to identify and build leaders. And if, if that weren't enough, the last thing I, I'll emphasize uh, is that not only will it impact your business within your own four walls, it's good for the country overall. So just two statistics to throw out here. Uh, one is the fact that if veterans aren't seen as having a successful employment outcome when they ultimately leave the military, you know, it's going to impact the 16, 17-year-olds out there that are, are potentially considering enlisting in the military. Uh, and as a result, it's actually a matter of national security. If you don't have people enlisting in the military, you don't have anyone protecting our borders, protecting wherever they would send the military service to to perform their duty. And in fact, that's exactly what's going on with our services today. Every single service, with the exception of the Marine Corps, has missed their recruiting goals. The mm-hmm. Army so much so that they've had to physically shrink the force. Um, and, and then the, the last one I'll throw out at you is... If veterans aren't hired, guess who pays the unemployment bill? It's the Department of Defense. The DOD has to pay unemployment compensation to states whose veterans aren't employed. And by the way, <laughs> that, those dollars come directly out of the Department of Defense operating budget, mm. taking away funds that would otherwise be spent training our troops to go downrange and do our bidding whatever that is. And those numbers are trivial. They've varied in recent years from hundred million up to when unemployment about a decade ago was at its worst, about a billion dollars a year. So veteran hiring has a direct and palpable uh, impact both on our individuals as well as the country overall.
1: I'm glad you brought up the enlistment percentage because I was going to ask you about that, which is just mind-boggling. But the one thing I would say as well is I tend to hire small companies like, I don't know, landscaping or doing uh, some work around the house if they have a veteran. And I, I love when small businesses use veterans to brand their business. So I know you talked a lot about bigger businesses, but I also think that there's a huge opportunity for you know the small businesses you had talked about at the outset.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And again, there's too few taking advantage. I guess the, the point I would make to organizations, and, and I state this up front in my most recent book, which is, you know, hey gang, there's, there's lots of good reasons to do this. Uh, I'm not asking you to do it to be a patriot and to wave right. the flag. I'm asking you to do it because it's good for you, <laughs> good for your business. Uh, it, it shouldn't be that difficult of a sell, but uh, because of the lack of education understanding out there it is.
1: Well, and it's also a group of people that have given so much to our country. So it's also, I mean, I would say the right thing to do in addition to like a a really great return on on your investment, but you did bring up your new book. So let's talk about that hiring veterans. So what compelled you to write this? You already have one book out there now you got a second.
0: Yeah. So this, this takes us back to the the, the three lines of effort i mentioned earlier and how I've kind of pivoted my life's purpose to focus on eliminating the civil military divide. Uh, so let me explain that. And then I'll dive a little bit further into the, the book itself. Uh, my way of approaching this civil military divide is to approach it from three different angles. And I, I'm strictly focused on employment. Um, lots of reasons as to, to why that's important. Um, Just to highlight one, if you can get a veteran fully employed in an optimal career field from the outset, the outset upon leaving the military, they will, over the course of their career, double their earnings, rate of retention, and job satisfaction. It's incredibly important from an individual standpoint. And then when you scale all those figures I mentioned uh, prior, in answer to your previous questions at an organizational level, there's all sorts of goodness that results both for the organization itself and the country overall. Uh, anyway, all that to say that I, I'm focused on employment and the way in which I've attacked this civil military divide is through uh, three, three efforts. The, the first book is called Mission Transition. And again, you can find this in the second book anywhere books are sold. But, and I'm proud to say that Mission Transition has gone on to be the most awarded book of its kind out there and i'm I'm hopeful that everyone coming out of the military will take advantage of it it's a practical guide to help our service members find full employment optimal career fields written in a manner just as i described before it's Carl walker on step one two three a lot of visuals a lot of exercises taking folks from uh, understanding who they are and who they want to be to actually assimilating into uh, their, their ultimate organization so that's mission transition but that's only half the divide uh, the other half is obviously those organizations that would uh, aspire to hire them, and, and thus the need for a second book, which comes out on Labor Day, entitled Hiring Veterans. It is a practical guide for organizational leaders, and I purposely use that term agnostically uh, because there's case studies highlighted in it that focus on both uh, large for-profit, small for-profit, nonprofit, uh, academic organizations, governmental organizations. Uh, you can build these programs basically anywhere, as long as you have the, the three things I mentioned before to, to do it well. And so the hiring veterans is a practical guide to enable those organizations to put those programs in place to successfully assimilate veterans of the, of the military community. And when I say that, I purposely mean veterans and military spouses. Uh, military spouses a, a bit of a, a subset, if you will, but a frequently overlooked subset uh, these, I'm, I'm stereotyping, but majority of them, uh, Front Away, tend to be women, uh, women that are highly educated, but because of uh, permanent changes of station and military members moving from place to place have had to uproot their lives, their careers multiple times. And so their, their resumes look to be uh, a mess uh, when in reality, they were doing the government's bidding. Um, again, incredible skill sets there. If we can just plug in with those individuals and engage them appropriately There's a huge upside uh, to engaging with that, that talent pool as well. But, but even if getting back to the the three areas, even if you're successful with those two sides of the divide, what still exists from an employment standpoint is a lack of what I would call a warm handoff in between a service member's last duty station and the community into which they actually settle. And, And that's where my Work with PurePost, my new day job, as it were, uh, at least over the past several years, uh, comes into play. What we do at PurePost is match the supply and demand of talent. uh, Although we do tend to be specialized in the military community, uh, based on the individual's competencies and skills, Uh, because we spent five years creating what is now the world's largest proprietary database of translated competencies and skills, uh, we're able to instantly take whatever you've done, whether you're a civilian, whether you're a military member, uh, understand your underlying competencies and skills and match you to open job uh, recs in the U.S. economy for which you're a fit on that basis. It's a unique way of matching. Uh, For an individual standpoint, it gets you a better match from the outset and thus realizing all those benefits that I mentioned also enables better upward mobility, better personal satisfaction. At an organizational level, again, because you're getting an optimal match from the outset, Uh, you're going to realize greater productivity and competitiveness from the outset and uh, over time and at scale, uh, you know, your, your organization and the country overall is going to benefit that much more.
1: When I hear the word or the statement, you said a warm handoff. Some of the things that come to mind that I've seen go sideways are just the transition into the organization, immersing yourself into the culture, having people understand the value that you bring is that work that you also do with organizations?
0: Uh, th- that's work that I would do under my Lewis Advisors hat in, in terms of helping <laughs> these organizations. Uh, yeah, I wear a couple hats. Uh, in, in terms of helping these organizations build programs. And part of that is one of the, in fact, the very first chapter in hiring veterans uh, involves exactly that. Mm. Helping organizations understand what are the various dimensions of their culture How do those compare with the various cultural dimensions of service members leaving the military today, Uh, shining a light on that, making that transparent and using that as a means to educate the service members coming into the organization Uh, from from an individual standpoint. And you don't have to be a a service member to understand this. I think it's the same for any civilian uh, changing your roles from one organization to another. Understanding the detail and those various dimensions of a culture and other organization are probably one of the toughest things to put your finger on. Uh, you, can, you can network your rear end off uh, and you can know a, a lot of people in there, but until you're living and breathing and operating in that environment every single day, it, it's hard to fully understand and appreciate what that, that cultural entails for you as an individual uh, and how it's going to impact your life and, and that of your family.
1: I'm curious because you've written now two books, obviously the second one coming out on Labor Day. And there's always this question of, you know, should I write a book on that thing that is important to me, that gives me purpose, that, you know, I'm excited about. When you reflect on this process, how did the process of writing the book impact or even help you to get you to where you are now? And really where I'm going with that is my guess is you probably went on... You know, a very long period of of self reflection, um, thinking about you know things that individuals and organizations should do, in order to bring veterans in. But but my guess is it had a pretty profound impact on on you and where you are today. Can you talk about that? And really, what I'm getting at is if somebody's out there thinking about or writing a book, you know how this can help them formulate their thoughts and ideas.
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I often make a joke that I could write a book about writing a book. Uh, <laughs> it, it is a process, and uh, it is not for the faint of heart. Uh, it should also not be approached as an opportunity to, to make a lot of money, because trust me, that's not going to happen. <laughs> but, uh, you know, again, the, the spark behind all this was, as I described before, and uh, trying to help a peer set, and by extension, uh, a broader talent pool that offers so much more uh, to the economy. And th- the more that I got in- engaged, uh, the-, the broader that I saw the the issue and the opportunity to help and ultimately resulted in this focus on the the civil-military divide.
1: So when do you think somebody should write a book or not?
0: I'll say whenever the spirit moves them (laughs) and they have, uh, sufficient bandwidth, uh, to do so, uh, just to tell you my own personal story as to how that came about, you know, just by the by, (laughs) what is now two books. uh, When I first set out with a vision to write these things that, uh, uh, it, I intended to have a single book encompassing both of them. But thankfully, I <laughs> was able to network with some other authors who uh, had obviously written books. And after uh, portraying to them where I was in the evolution of what has become the first book, they I was coached to, you know, whoa, <laughs> cool, cool your jets, calm your horses here. You've already got a solid book there. Then the, the second half of what I intended to be the first book has now become the second book. Uh, But to to get back to actually writing this thing, uh, I was fully employed at the time um, doing a lot of consulting work. So a lot of travel, uh, a lot of time away from home. Uh, But in spite of that, I I carved out time well before the day would start uh, as well as in the evenings. Although I probably did most of my writing in the morning because that's when I tend to be most mentally alert. Uh, I'd get up at uh, four o'clock, put on a cup of coffee, a pot of coffee rather. And by 4.30, I'd be sufficiently caffeinated and the, the wheels were finally turning. And, you know, I'd, I'd write for two plus hours as long as I could until my first meeting happened. Uh, the, the, the second book, because I by then I pivoted outside of that work to what is now my day job at Pure Post, was able to expend uh, a little bit more time in a given day and wasn't, as always, burning the candle at both ends, as it were. Uh, Regardless of where you do it, how you do it, I can't emphasize enough that it's a challenging uh, endeavor uh, and truly a journey. Uh, You will start out in one direction with an outline uh, with intended purpose at the end. As you get into it, as you engage with your case studies, your subjects, whoever uh, is is making up the the content, uh, you may well find yourself heading off in another direction or perhaps disproving a hypothesis that you set out to prove. Uh, So if anyone's getting, I'll I'll open myself up. If anyone has an interest in in writing one, I'll be happy to talk you through more detail, how I did it and uh, the, the process by which you can actually get it printed in a traditional sense, which has been my route.
1: Yeah, man, I'm going down this path and kind of pulling on the string because I talked to a lot of people that want to do something different or you know, their purpose is tugging at them or they're being kind of pulled to do something. And I find it fascinating to go through the process of putting it down in writing. Mm -hmm. And my guess would be, I've never written a book. I put together outlines and then I stopped. (laughs) And that's probably for good reason because I guess where my mind is at is that this is a great litmus test to figure out, you know, if you're thinking about doing something different or focusing on something that really matters to you, going down the process and starting to outline and write a book is maybe a great way to do it. And irrespective of whether or not you publish it or not, once again, it's kind of a great way of figuring out, are you on the right path of doing something that may be you know, very different from what you're doing today?
0: Well, not just on the right path. I, I would say that the process of putting together a book, again, whether or not you publish it, it, it forces you to become an expert in whatever that Mm -hmm. is and if you're looking to make a career field (laughs) you you would certainly want to appear to whoever that new ecosystem is as knowing your stuff and uh, the the diligence required uh, and the investigation and research required to produce a competently written book will inevitably pose you as having that expertise in that new field whatever you you cause it to be. In fact, you know, the, the proper way, in my view, uh, my way of thinking, uh, the proper way to view a book is not in and of the book itself, because <laughs> unless your name is a, a Grisham or a King or uh, some other famous author you can throw out any other name, you're, you're typically not going to make much money uh, on a book. There's some crazy statistic out there that uh, 99% of books only sell uh, you know, 100 copies or something, yeah. some radical statistic like that. Um, and th- thankfully, I've sold a few more than that and I'll, helped <laughs> I'll, I'll to sell a few more. The, the the point of it is, if you're making a career pivot, it's a great way to, to codify your thinking, portray yourself as an expert and use the book to propel you uh, to do whatever it is that you want to do, whether it's speak, whether it's advise uh whatever that new career field or capacity in which you intend to function it gives you that basis for doing so you know i i would equate it to you know going back perhaps to a graduate school that might be another way to pivot your career
1: yeah i love where you're going with that because well my main takeaway is that it it's not necessarily about the book per se but it's about the journey that you're going on that journey of doing research about formulating your thoughts and ideas and maybe unique perspectives, maybe talking to people that you otherwise wouldn't so that when you then transition into that new thing that you do, you have some competence on it and you could talk about it. You could cite all the different statistics that you did. And so maybe not getting so wrapped up in the end of having a book, but the journey of becoming really deep on that topic you care about.
0: Sure. And it opens your mind. You know, I'll point to my experience with the second book, while I could talk with perhaps much more authority on the first book, because I, I'd, I'd literally walked it in a couple of different ways on both active duty and the reserves. Uh, so very intimately familiar with it. I wasn't as directly uh, walking that path in the second book. I, I am not, uh, you know, I haven't spent my career as an HR professional. Um, other than my work at organizations uh, being involved with their veteran hiring programs. Uh, you know, I haven't directly led one. Uh, and so I had to directly engage that are with individuals that are actually doing so. And the course of that, educated myself and, of course, helped to hope to help educate any number of additional uh, organizations that are looking to put similar programs in place on how to do the same. Uh, And that's also, uh, frankly, why I set out expertise, uh, brought on uh, Dr. Anthony Garcia as a contributor to the book uh, as a means to lend some legitimacy uh, and some additional expertise from those that actually have walked the path.
1: One of the things I cite oftentimes on this podcast is a stat that still just blows my mind. And I think it's like 70 some odd percent. Let's just say 75% of people are just not connected to the work that they do, which which blows me away because that means there's a lot of people that get up every single day and basically don't want to be at the job that they're doing. It sounds like you found a way out of that and you're probably the 25% where you're actually doing work that you enjoy. But that's oftentimes a huge leap for people to, to take. And so I'm curious if you could just share your transition and and maybe talk about the tug or what was missing in your life that really propelled you to go down this path. And obviously writing a book may have been part of it, but what really pulled you into doing this work where maybe you felt more connected and it's in your purpose to the purpose of your life now?
0: Yeah. And I'll go back even further because there's been a couple of pivots like this in my life. And uh, given the topic we Talking about here, veterans. I'll go all the way back to when I decided to leave active duty because it was a similar realization at the time. You know, I made reference to the you know <laughs> the ages of the dinosaurs back when I was on active duty and decided to leave. Uh, I just saw at that point in time uh, not a, a bright future uh, for the military. It was uh, post first Gulf War. There were drawdowns. I was a, a tanker. I, I was one of those combat arms trigger puller types and. Uh, it, it got to the point where uh, because of funding uh, drawdowns, I, we couldn't even roll our tanks out of the, the motor pool and uh, go out and train or, or shoot them, uh, which is, you know, why, why you sign up. That's why you, you know, it's why you sign up to go do that that stuff. So uh, anyway, I, I saw a, a brighter future, brighter opportunities outside of the service, and you know, I, I looked around and there were a great many peers that couldn't fathom doing anything else. They kind of get addicted to that, you know, biweekly mm-hmm. paycheck hit coming from the government and um, don't challenge themselves to think beyond what they've done and consider what they could do. So fast forward to, you know, my, oh, um, 20 some odd years Uh, By the time I made the pivot in the corporate world, a number of different organizations, you know, great success, great time, great experiences, lots of education, training, lots of great relationships. Uh, But, you know, over time, this idea began percolating. I talked through it up front as to how this whole uh, ideation around the civil military divide and my uh, motivation to pursue it, it, that, that voice it became louder and louder, uh, so much so that I actually began, you know, writing the first book in the margins, uh, and uh, conceiving of this uh, strategic plan to address the the broader civil military divide. It, it got to a point, um, really, upon completion of the first book and partway into the second, where I began engaging with uh, who are now my my peers at at PeerPost. Uh, initially took on a consultative role with them. But the more that I talked with them, the more I engaged with them, uh, the more (laughs) I felt the stars aligning. And Mm -hmm. it's rare that I felt this in my life, where you just have this sense, for whatever reason, call it karma, call it what you will, that you need to be following this direction more. You need to be spending more of your time. It helps fill your bucket, if you will, uh, to use uh, some of the terms and uh, our in vogue books out there these days. And so this, it's ultimately the path I, I decided to choose. Uh, it, it, it is, it does tend to be more energizing it, again, but again, that's not to say that it's easy <laughs> or for the faint of heart, Um you know, I, I have yet to become a, a multi millionaire <laughs> pursuing this new field. Uh, but, uh, th- you know, that's not necessarily the measure of success. Uh, if you view your success as the amount of people that you're actually helping and putting a dent in this civil military divide, uh, educating more people in that regard. Uh, to ultimately at the end of the day, not only help the individuals as well as the organizations in the country overall, uh, then you can say you've, you've done your work and achieved what you set out to do. So,
1: yeah, I was going to ask you, and I I think I know the answer now based on, on your response, but I was going to ask you if you used a structured way of making the decision to choose this work. But what I think I hear, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that there was something down I think you said there was a voice inside my head that was drawing me to this issue. And so to a certain degree, you started to experiment by writing the book, putting the ideas down, doing research, talking to people. And then that ultimately led you to the work that you're doing now. But it's almost like you were scratching an itch versus, hey, I'm going to burn the bridges. I'm going to go do this work. And, you know, off with the corporate life, I'm going to Go make an impact in this world and and the reason why i'm i'm um, drilling down on this is that so many times people think that oh if if i really want to pursue something i just need to quit my job i need to take a year <laughs> off i need to write the business case which as you know as well as i do that you know we both have families that's just not practical right but going and taking a topic that matters to you and working it in whatever way you want to whether it's a book or some other way is a practical way to start to kind of dip your toes
0: Yeah, and there's this whole, you know, quiet quitting um, uh, issue percolating through the corporate world these days. Yeah. You know, there are those out there that would be willing to take a flying leap. uh, And even though my risk tolerance is a little bit more than my wife's, there's no way I could get away with doing something like that. Uh, The great environment I found myself in is I worked for an organization that was able to provide me some modicum of flexibility that mm-hmm. would enable me to be engaged in outside work interests and to begin to pursue uh, you know, what would start out as a hypothesis, if you will. And and writing the book and going down the the trail that's ultimately led to a second book and and working for a whole new company in a a whole different way. Um again, if if you're Young, unentangled uh well before kids, and i will have that flexibility and are willing to take a flying leap, have at it, but <laughs> I'll tell you that's uh that's not uh for most people, and uh, I certainly would not have been able to get away with that
1: so now that you're on the other side, can you compare kind of the work not not the specific work but you know work that maybe align more with something that you deeply care about versus you know, work that you were doing before, maybe the the good and the bad, because you've even alluded to the fact that, yeah, this sounds great, but it ain't easy, you know, and, and it's not like you're, uh, you know, making millions of dollars right away. So, so what is the good and bad when you compare the two worlds?
0: Well, just to characterize the two worlds, um, you know, I came from an environment, heavily corporate pick as big a company as you'd like. And that'll give you a sense. I mean, you're, um, a, a cog in the in the the, the big operation. Uh, but what you do have, and it obviously varies from organization to organization and culture to culture, uh, but the organization I was working for had a very supportive culture and uh, in, in comparing the two, uh, resulted in a regular paycheck in addition to lots of other benefits. Now, I, I made the leap from that to an organization that is in startup mode. So very entrepreneurial driven uh, that certainly comes with benefits as would any entrepreneurial venture in that uh, you're your own boss. You can decide, you know, when you're going to start working during the day, when you're going to knock off uh, how much or how much effort you want to devote within a given day, when you're going to take a vacation and what have you, you're the boss. Uh, So that comes with a lot of benefits. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you're solely accountable f- at the end of the day for uh, what you bring in, uh, how you're paying your people, what you realize from the effort mm-hmm. financially yep. uh, when all is said and done. And if you ask me to say what I miss the most <laughs> sitting where I am now from what I experienced before, it's probably the, the biweekly paycheck is one of the big things <laughs> that, yeah. that that I missed. Uh, in an entrepreneurial world, you gotta eat what you kill to, to put it bluntly.
1: Yeah. I have a really good friend that left the place where I used to work and, you know, thought she was going to work for kind of a smaller organization, you know, as the grass is greener, I'm going to have, you know, a bigger role and then got there and, and found out that it was very different. I think upon reflection was like, gosh, I wish I Wish I didn't do that. And I think maybe one of the differences is she literally did jump and she went to this new thing. And I don't want to say without giving it any thought, because she gave it a whole lot of thought. But I don't know if she experienced what it was like you did in terms of kind of the the issue and the topic that you were focused on before she did it. And I think in the end, said, Oh, you know what? I, I kind of want to go back. And the only reason I'm sharing this is because, you know, as somebody is going through the process of deciding what to do and and always thinking that things are better on the other side, it, it does behoove you to really think about it and maybe get some practical experience somewhat like you did.
0: Yeah. Thankfully I followed my own advice, which is how I advise folks, you know, specific service members in the first book, how to approach this. Cause it's a similar career jump mm. for them. So what do you say? Yeah. Yeah. To start at least two years prior to mm. exiting the service, you know, identify your network, engage with your network, begin doing you know, informational interviews, shadowing, find some way to get what I'll call boots on the ground, experiencing, uh, trying to prove or disprove the career hypothesis that you have. I take them through any series of exercises to identify what those hypotheses are, and then engaging with their their network to prove or disprove. So I kind of did that on my own. And to kind of bring it full circle to your original question, you know, the, the the upside on all that is when you have found your appropriate Landing spot and are regularly engaged in it. It, it does give you an incremental energy uh, that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Uh, there are days where you know, you'll sit down and begin working, and the, the you know the clock on the wall just kind of evaporates. You look up and you're suddenly you know hours down the line, and it seemed like it went by in a minute. Uh, th- that's probably been one of the biggest changes, and uh, in a positive sense.
1: Oh Matt, uh, that is like you know the number one thing for me, and probably what drew me out of where I was before was the opportunity to go deep on things that I really care about and the opportunity to kind of design and create that I otherwise wouldn't be because oftentimes in a big corporate environment like you shared, you know there's a lot of bureaucracy and admin and meetings and stuff like that that has the uh, the ability to suck the life out of you. so uh, I love that idea of like sitting down and and not knowing that so much time has passed when you finally look up. So that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: So I'm curious, now that you've made the transition, what fear do you think most people have that's unfounded? So meaning I'm thinking about doing something that's different. Maybe I even use your two year formula and I have this fear, but now that you've gone through this, is there a fear that you think is unfounded that, you know, if somebody was out there listening saying, Hey Matt, you know, I'm really worried about this, that you could say, you know, don't don't worry about that too much. It's going to be okay.
0: I don't know that I'd ever just tell people to ignore any concerns that they would have. <laughs> I would tell them to try to offset that concern by doing some research, engaging with individuals, you know, certainly in the case of in my case and, uh, uh, yours as well and engaging with your, your better half <laughs> as it were, yes. to, to make sure that they're along and bought into to what's going on because their life is going to change inevitably as well. Um, so that's, that's the the biggest thing that comes to mind in response to that.
1: So Matt, you, you talked about, you know, some of the things that maybe people shouldn't worry so much about, but what about now that you've gone through the transition, what advice would you have for somebody as they're potentially thinking about something different that they need to pay more attention to? Like maybe they're not given enough thought to fill in the gap that they absolutely need to before they make a leap, whether that is an entrepreneurial or maybe that's just following, you know, their passion or purpose, whatever it is that they want to do, what do they need to pay more attention to?
0: Sure. So by the nature of career change, I'm just going to make an assumption that a good many of these will tend to fall into more entrepreneurial bucket, if you will, uh, whereby you and your career aren't attached to a, a large organization uh, and you're more dependent on the, the product of your own efforts. Uh, again, while that's freeing and has lots of benefits, the other reality behind it is that you're now you know, financially responsible for the outcomes that you're going to generate. And while I hope for great success, Uh, The reality is, if you believe what you know, Department of Labor and Small Business Administration and others tell you, uh, a huge number of these, like upwards of ninety percent, ultimately fail. Uh, So I I would encourage you to think through one, you know, how much money this is going to take, how long it's going to take, because inevitably, in my experience, (laughs) it's going to take twice as long and cost twice as much. Uh, And to ensure that you're not spending yourself and your family. Uh, into a, a basket here, I'd encourage you to kind of put some short-term waypoints in place mm. to uh, indicate that you're on the right path. Um, and if things aren't going down the right path, there's a phrase we have to, to fail fast, uh, such that you're not wasting your and your, your family's resources on an entirely failing effort.
1: Yeah, I will tell you in my my own circumstance, I started to think about what I wanted to do differently many, many years before I pulled the trigger. And the number one constraint, quite frankly, was finances. Like I have three kids and I had a mortgage and, you know, they all wanted to go to college. And so I started to think about it years in advance and started to shift my life so that I can make it happen. But it, it literally was years in the making and it included things like not buying crap I didn't need, which is probably not a bad thing. And, you know, moving to a lower cost state, selling some stuff that quite frankly um, was nice to have, but but once again wasn't important in my grand plan. So I I couldn't agree more on the finance situation to make sure that you're comfortable before you jump in. And then the idea of failing forward fast, I think is critical, especially given the fact that A lot of times, when you start out on whatever venture it is, it may not be ultimately where you're going to get to. And the idea of failing forward fast is that you're going to learn along the way and it's going to allow you to pivot to ultimately get you to where you need to get to. So, both concepts, Matt, 100%. I think that's great advice.
0: A a couple other (laughs) examples you threw out a couple of your own. You know, when I pivoted down this, perhaps to provide myself a bit of motivation uh, to push things forward and realize success sooner. I made myself two promises. Uh, I have a couple of, ho- I have a few hobbies, but uh, two where I've made a promise to myself. One, I happen to collect baseball cards and I won't get <laughs> into the the nature of my collection, but it's fairly substantial. Uh, and I would regularly buy them. So one promise was I'm not going to buy any baseball cards until uh, we're making a profit. And then the, the other one, similarly, I'm, I tend to be into wines and, uh, had at one point was a substantial seller I since drank it down because the other promise I made was I'm not buying any more wine until we make a profit with this thing so that's that's my motivation to to keep driving among other things
1: but but it's important though because I think what you're doing is you're saying this is so important to me that I'm going to make these sacrifices in order to get to where I I need to get to I do have to ask you what's your favorite card that you own <laughs>
0: Oh, f- favorites tough. Um,
1: okay, what's the one? Well, which one emotionally do you love the most? Uh,
0: well, w- when I played, I was uh, I was a pitcher, so I love great great pitchers. I'll, I'll point to, to um, uh, Nolan Ryan's rookie card, Tom Seaver's rookie card. I've, I've got both of those, but I, I've got for the baseball card geeks out there, I've got complete sets back through 67 and I'm working through most of the, I've got partial sets through the sixties and working backwards from there.
1: So let's fast forward one month, your book comes out. Where can people find
0: Uh, it? Hiring veterans be published by career press comes out on labor day. Um, As I like to say though, because I'm traditionally published, they can find it anywhere books are sold. Uh, A couple different formats, uh, if you're into Kindle or paperback. Awesome.
1: So Matt, my final question is the one I love the most, which is the inspiration behind the podcast, which is that song that really brings to life the journey <laughs> that you've been on. Yeah. What yeah. That song and, uh,
0: for you? You know, like you, I'm a, a big Zeppelin fan, so that'll kind of characterize the types of music I listen to. But uh, given the journey that I'm on, I think I'm going to pivot to Tom Petty here. And there's a couple of songs. Uh, off of his first solo album that I think really describe uh, the entrepreneurial journey, at least as I'm experiencing it, and uh, hope to <laughs> to realize here and uh, hopefully not too distant future. So the, the songs would be running down a dream because any entrepreneur is running down a dream. And the other one is um, uh, won't back down because uh, you, you've got to have that grit and determination and fortitude and uh, being able to turn away the naysayers and believe in your vision and continue pushing forward day after day if you want to see success. So that, that's the world I'm living these days and those are kind of the, the wind themes, if you will.
1: See, I knew I liked you because of the Zeppelin connection. Um, I just saw Zozo. I don't know if you've ever heard of them last Friday in downtown Austin. They're a cover band, but a pretty big one. They tore the entire world, Amazing, like if well, when I closed my eyes, it was almost like I went back twenty or thirty years. So it was incredible. So I love that. And then my first album, I think I told you this when we first met, was "Damn oh, yeah. the Torpedoes" by by uh, Tom Petty and the yeah, Heartbreakers. It's an is. incredible album. If you so,
0: haven't seen uh, Jason Bonham tour with his band, that's a similar experience. Kind of reliving the past there.
1: I So. Is that, do you know the name? It's funny that you say that because I have a client that invited me to go see them next Wednesday, I think in Dallas. So I will see them next week. Oh, I can't wait. But Matt, I really appreciate your time. This has been incredible. I, I love the fact that you're doing work that is important and purposeful to you. But more importantly, maybe that it's making a difference in people that have given everything to this country. And I love the beginning as you were sharing kind of the value proposition in the business case for organizations, big and small, to be bringing veterans in. And and if there's ever a time to be getting people that have really hands-on experience that can help organizations thrive, now is the time. I, I also think it's incredible just to hear your story of how you transitioned. And I think you gave some incredible ideas and advice, pragmatic advice to people who are thinking about doing something different, which once again was the whole purpose of this podcast is to help people think about, you know, things that they can do differently so that, you know, at some point in time they're saying they're singing their song. So Matt, I no, really Mike, appreciate it. Thanks for having today. me uh,
0: and the opportunity to share my story. I'd encourage our listeners, you know, hey, engage into this veteran uh, concept, uh, do your research. And again, I'm happy to help work with you. This thing isn't going to resolve itself on its own. It's certainly not going to resolve itself uh, from a government standpoint. Uh, last kind of point I'll make uh, is, you know, if, if I'm the CEO of the Pentagon and I have limited capital to allocate, which I do, is it going to go to beans and bullets or is it going to go to help people successfully transition out of my organization? Now that, you know, the Pentagon will always default to beans and bullets. Therefore, they're always going to shortchange the people that have devoted their lives to the organization. It's short term thinking, but that's the reality we live in, even though it, if it would behoove them to uh, insert some more long term thinking in that regard. But that's where we as individuals on the outside need to pick up the slack and help meet these folks halfway.
1: Damn it, Matt! You said something, and now I have one final question, and this will be the final question. If I am a organization that hasn't invested in hiring veterans, where do I go? Uh,
0: well, you could certainly start with me. But one of the age old questions I get from organizations is, "Where do I find these people?" Uh, and <laughs> Chapter Six mm-hmm. in my new book uh, gives voluminous answer to that question. Uh, there, there are no lack of. Awesome. Uh, avenues through which you can engage with veteran talent. Um, I won't even attempt to summarize a a top five or so. There's just so many avenues that folks don't even realize exist. So chapter six and hiring veterans.
1: (laughs) I was going to say, and that wasn't even a a layup or a tee-up, go get his book. That's the answer. Chapter six. Thanks, Matt. (laughs) This was an eye-opening conversation for me. I was keenly aware of the recruiting challenges in the military, but I didn't fully appreciate the obstacles that veterans were having landing a job. If you're a leader in the private sector, I'd encourage you to challenge what your organization is doing to hire and retain veterans. As you heard, it's good for business, but it's also good for the country. We should be taking care of our military, especially during moments that matter for them. If you liked my conversation with Matt, go back to past episodes to hear other amazing stories of people who were once lost or broken, and now are singing their song. Big thank you to everyone who listens to Time to Sing Your Song and being part of this community that I am building. My goal is to help everyday people like you and me use the hard times as a catalyst to create a life that we were all meant to live. Until next time, start singing your song today because... As the anonymous quote goes when tomorrow comes this day will be gone forever in its place is something that you have left behind let it be something good